Hello, everyone. I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. Taibi Kaler is an award-winning clinical psychologist from humble Indiana roots whose work on personality development has found its way into textbooks, teacher trainings, NASA, the upper echelons of corporate and government leadership around the world. He is a groundbreaking researcher. He has assisted law enforcement in criminal profiling and was on the team to select emotionally and mentally suited applicants for space travel. Yet his work is, pardon the pun, very much down to earth. He has concluded that there are five basic drivers for human personality. These are internal engines, motivators. Each person has all five of these little engines inside, but the individual tends to rely upon one more than the others. Can we see that slide? Here they are. Be perfect. Please others. Try hard. Be strong, hurry up. Kaler says these are the five drivers of human personality. Now maybe we can just sit with these a second. Because I imagine you can see yourself in one of those. See your children, maybe your spouse. Obviously the hurry up folks are in a hurry. They've got a lot to do. And they get it done. Their lives are an output productive machine. Be strong is obvious, like the rest of these drivers. Strength at all cost, autonomy, don't ask for help. Then there are the tryhards. I've learned from my boys that this is now a put down. An insult. Someone who desperately wants to win or fit in or belong at all costs. The people pleasers, they're probably the sweetest of this bunch. They're easy to be around. They want you to be happy, even if they are dishonest about their own happiness. And lastly, be perfect. We're going to drive this engine for a little while this morning. If you are a be perfect person, you know to measure twice, cut once. You check things carefully because you have a checklist. You desire accuracy. You love high standards. You are reliable. You pay attention to details. You move toward absolutes and certainty and away from probables or ambiguity. You work hard and you expect others to work hard as well. You actually have a fear of disappointing. That fear is not as strong as in these please others people, but it's there. Your greater fear is failure, and your greatest fear of all, losing control of yourself, 
your situation, or the work you have been given to do. As the driver more than implies, things need to be perfect for you. And if they are not, there is this almost incurable, unbearable angst that develops. Imperfection sort of drives the be perfect people right over the cliff. University of Connecticut researchers have concluded that about 30% of the population are perfectionists. Let's look around the room for a minute. (laughs) However, when it comes to gifted students, type A personalities, those who excel, and those who reach leadership positions, 80% of that population suffers, suffers from perfectionism. It is a suffering. This quality of their work will always be outstanding, and the grade on their Performance will always be unparalleled, but with that success comes self-inflicted torture. It's all about one must do. What others or themselves should do. Everything is black and white. It's either right or it's wrong. There are no shades of gray in between. There is this constant post-activity assessment of how things could have been better or more efficient or more enjoyable. Now how did this happen to these poor, hard-working souls? I mean, if we take Jesus to heart, and this is one of the most profound insights I've come to in the last few years, if we take Jesus to heart when we get to heaven and stand before the Almighty, God will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. God won't say that was perfect. Think about that a minute. Well done is well done. Good and faithful will be the accolade, not that was flawless and faultless. If that's good enough for God, it would seem to be good enough for just about anybody, but it's not. Not for the be perfect crowd. Maybe their parents were too demanding. Maybe they grew up in a chaotic family where being good got them ahead or eased their minds. Maybe everything around them was so out of control, they compensated with inner control. Maybe they were dropped on their heads. Maybe it is their birth order. The oldest child in the family, by the way, trends toward perfectionism. Or maybe they were just born that way. And by nature, they have this internal unattainable standard, these pre-programmed rules inside of them. That they just can't escape. Well, after all of that, if you're a be perfect person, I have got some good news for you today. First, you are in the Bible. Right there in the Gospels. Or at least your archetype is. Second, you are one of Jesus' best friends. He really loves you. He recognizes all your hard work He wants you to know that you're a little too uptight about it. But He's on your side. And third, He's going to help you do better. Better, not perfect. At least not by your impossible standards. This is number five in our series of talks on simplifying our lives. We're going to simplify our success today, or at least address it. We're going to 
shorten that long list of things that have to be perfect. And before you nap on me, all of you non-perfectionists out there, and there are a few, you B-strongs, try-harders, people-pleasers, and hurry-ups, you listen too. Because I think Jesus offers us the same counsel. Our scripture reading today is from Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. We meet the patron saint of the perfectionist. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him, Jesus, and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself. Tell her to help me. The Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. The Word of God for the people of God. As I contemplate this story, Martha appears to be the older of the two sisters, a clear marker for perfectionism, the firstborn. And it is into Martha's home that Jesus and his disciples arrive, an environment she can better control, say, than being on someone else's turf. Martha is the hostess, the hostess with the mostess. At least that is what she is attempting to be. She is working hard. She wants everything to be perfect. And it is hard to blame her how many people get a personal visit from the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is sitting in her living room. And she has basted that leg of lamb. She has labored over those casseroles. She has fussed with all those desserts. She has nearly broken her back, vacuuming the carpet and waxing the floor and cutting the grass in preparation. And bless her heart, the sweat dripping from her brow. No one was lifting a finger to help her. Perfectionists are always keen to that observation. Where others are slacking off. And then there's Mary. She's probably a people pleaser. She never did really pull her weight around the house growing up anyway. The youngest ones can be like that sometimes. She's just sitting in there surrounded by that troop of 12 lazy men who could eat their weight in fried chicken and mashed potatoes. Listening to Jesus' never-ending stories about something. And it finally becomes more than Martha can take. She storms in from the kitchen and demands that Jesus tell Mary to get her rear end gear. Doesn't he care that she is doing all the work? Didn't he know that dinner parties don't materialize out of thin air? I mean, come on. I mean, maybe you can wave your hand and turn water into wine or stones into bread or cup coasters into biscuits, but it doesn't work that way in the real world, pal. People have to work. And I'm also told that tattling in small children is the first sign of perfectionism. Because they want everything to be right, you see. And they will appeal to an authority to make it right. 
But Jesus doesn't shame Martha in response. He doesn't preach at her. You know, there's preaching to and there's preaching at. He doesn't preach at her. He speaks to her about one thing in verse 42. What is this one thing? It's a little ambiguous. The older English translations indicate that Jesus was saying only one thing is needed. Possibly speaking of spiritual rather than physical food. And we know that Jesus talked like that sometimes. I think that's a little heavy handed, spiritually speaking. Because more recent manuscript discoveries are exceedingly practical instead. If we could have that verse. Jesus wasn't spiritualizing the conversation. He was saying simply, Martha, a few things are needed or indeed only one. I think what he is telling her is, you've gone to too much trouble. I didn't need a seven course meal. A few things would have been enough. One thing would have been enough. But because you've been worried about these other things, it's taken all your time, it's taken all your energy, and this time that we should be able to enjoy, you're not enjoying yourself at all. Because you want things to be so perfect. I think Jesus is saying to Martha, and Jesus would say to us, it's better to do a few things well, maybe one thing well, than to attempt to do a hundred things perfectly. It can't be done. Come and sit down. All this striving, all this doing, is getting in the way of simply being, of enjoying. See, Martha didn't need help with all she was doing. She didn't need Jesus to intervene. She really didn't need to pray about anything to ask God to help her do something. She was already doing too much. Why would God or Jesus become an accomplice to our insanity? Oh, I just got to ask God to help me do it. Why are you doing all those things in the first place? And why are you trying to do them so perfectly? Don't misunderstand me. To do your best at something is good. To improve yourself, to pursue excellence. These are worthy, and I'm probably showing my own perfectionism here, but shoddy work and poor performance is nothing to be applauded. Right? But to operate your life with inflexible precision, maddening, impossible to obtain perfection, it's likely, in the words of Brene Brown, you're employing a maladaptive scheme. To avoid the pain of blame, shame, or judgment, you are using your attempted perfectionism as a shield, as a way to soothe yourself. It will not work unless taking tons of pills and developing heart disease is your idea of a very good time. A Zen story to this end. It involves this desperate businessman who was seeking the counsel of this old guru who lived, of course, up on a mountain in a cave. In the executive, he was so harried and hurried and torn to pieces. He was trying so hard, striving so much, but he was so dissatisfied with, with everything. And he climbed up to the, to the mountaintop, sat at the mouth of the cave with this holy man, and the holy man listened to his guest for a while. And after he listened for a while, he went inside and just got a jar. And he brought the jar out and he dipped the jar into this little 
dirty babbling stream that was running alongside the cave, and it was all muddy and dirty, and he sat it in front of the man, and he said, would you like a drink of water? And the man said, no, of course not. It's filthy. And he just sat there with him a while. And as they sat there, and the holy man continued to listen, the silt settled all to the bottom. And then it was possible to take a good, clean, long draw off the top of that jar. And he offered it to the man who, of course, had climbed the mountain. He was thirsty, and he drank it readily. And then the holy man asked him, what did you do to clear up the water? And the man said, I didn't do anything. And the holy man said, that is exactly right. Your mind and your heart is agitated and stirred because you cannot let the water settle. We perfectionists, that's what we need. Can, can you sit still long enough? Just let the water settle. I think the perfectionists, the tryhards, the stoic and the strong, the people pleasers, those who are bleeding out, won't you please love me, the hurry ups and the get stuff done, folks, we've all taken on too much in one way or another, compensating for our losses, striving to make up for our inadequacies, hustling to get a few emotional strokes or to make some mythical person in our imagination proud of us, and it's all make-believe. It's all folklore that we have come to believe. We must succeed by meeting some impossible standard, by accomplishing more, by being impervious to criticism or failure or loss. And to be frank, we all need a good dose of the gospel of not giving a damn. Or at least a few less dams. I'm not saying you don't care about something. I'm saying you learn to care about the right things. And maybe the right thing, singular. And let the rest settle. Let it fall away. My mama would be so disappointed in me using that word damn in church. Though I'm not convinced, given her outlook on life, that she was ever convinced that what we do here is church. <laughs> My mother passed last year, and she is with Jesus now, so I know that for the first time in her existence... She is restful. She was half perfectionist and half try hard. And I know that Martha had to have been her favorite Bible character. Because she's the patron saint for those personalities. When I was 14 years old in the spring of 1985, unknown to my Bible thumping fundamentalist mother, I stole secretly away from home one night to see my first ever secular music show. It had been all gospel and mountain folk and porch music before then, but I had landed a ticket to see the one and only Merle Haggard at concerts in the country in my hometown. Never had I seen such a sight. The crowd, the stage, the band, it was just like church, but more fun. Merle sang all his hits that night, The Way I Am, The Fight Inside of me, me, Big City Turned Me Loose and Set Me Free, and of course, Mama Tried. And I'm standing there 
a fugitive from home, and when he sang that song, I said to myself, standing in the sawdust, she sure does. That became my mother's theme song to the day she passed. She tried to keep everyone happy, even though that was impossible for her, for anyone. But she was undeterred nonetheless. She tried to become all that her mother had been, a mark as high as anyone could strive. She tried to please her siblings. She was the youngest, and she was always laboring to make them proud. She tried to care for others at her own great physical expense. There were many mornings I remember her coming home from working third shift at nursing homes, from doing literal back-breaking work on the graveyard shift so that she could come home and get us on the school bus. She tried to stay connected to her community, even when her health would not allow it. She would work the phones like she was the operator at a Ma Bell switchboard. She tried to keep us all informed, her children that were living away, and every time their phone, my phone would ring early in the morning, I knew it was her calling to tell me that somebody was either dead or gay, because that's the only news that comes out of a small southern town. Y'all know I ain't lying? She tried to be the best mother that she was capable of being. She tried when it came to her grandchildren. She loved them and drove them crazy. And my mama just tried too hard. So many times. She had this rolling, turning, twisting want to. Trying to manage outcomes, trying to impose her will, trying to fix people, trying to straighten out everybody and everything, and often she just tangled herself up as a result. And she came across so fierce, but she was so fragile. So much bravado, so much vulnerability. She wanted to take care of everybody and needed the whole village to take care of her. I couldn't change her no more than she could change me. I just wish that before she left this world, she could have let the water settle. I don't know how many times I said to her, Mama, just come sit down. You're wearing me out. And that Jesus that I know you love, He loves back. And He loves more. The more quiet and more still we become, the more we're able to experience the presence and the love of Christ. But you have to get still. His perfect love is the only cure for our perfectionism. And for myself, for you, I hope that we can all begin to understand that while today is still called today. The quicker the better. It will set us free.